0: This Parsha podcast is dedicated by Tova Florence in honor of Kobe and China Bracha Fliegelman on the occasion of the birth of their young son, Azrael Usher. May young Azrael Usher bring much joy to the whole family and be a bright beacon for the entire family, the entire community, and the entire Jewish nation. A quick programming note. Uh, Next week, please, God, we are going to be going on a little bit of a summer trip. As you know, uh, every summer we travel to Canada and visit the Northeast and escape from the scorching furnace that is Houston, Texas. And uh, the plan is, please, God, to not miss a single Parsha podcast uh, the last couple of years with the help of the Almighty we haven't missed over the course of the summer. We hope to continue that This year, but maybe the quality will dip a little bit. So you'll forgive me for that. Maybe yes, maybe no. But please God, we will continue, uh, in our travels wherever we may be. Uh, now we're going to focus on Parsha's Korach. And uh, this one, I have no excuses. We're not traveling quite yet. Uh, but if it's, uh, quality is not quite up to par, it's not what you're expecting from the Parsha podcast. Send me an email. RabbiWalby at gmail.com. If it exceeds your expectation, you can send me an email as well to the aforementioned email address, RabbiWalby at com. In Parsha's Korach, of course, we read about Korach's grand insurrection. He's Moshe's first cousin. Their fathers are brothers. And he takes great umbrage, Rashi tells us, with the appointment of another cousin, a younger cousin, Elitzafan ben Uziel, he was appointed to be the leader of the family of Kahas, a position that Korach believed was rightfully his, and Korach launches a full-scale rebellion against Moshe, against Aaron, and really against God. And he begins and he says, well, why are you any better? We're all holy. Why do you lord over the community? Why are you taking all these prestigious positions? You're the king, Moshe, and your brother's the high priest, and then when there's something that should go to me, because I'm next in line in this family, you skip me over, and you give it to the younger cousin, Elit And Korach is successful at riling up the people, and he gets some co-conspirators, and he gets the... Malcontents, The serial malcontents Dasan, Dathan, and Abiram own Ben Peles, 250 heads of the nation, and he does some theatrics. He says, well, if you have a garment that's entirely blue, must it have Tzitzis, a house full of Torah scrolls, doesn't need a mezuzah. Eventually there's a showdown, a Ketorosathon, and it ends up very badly for all the mutineers. Moshe tells everyone to distance themselves from Korach and from his collaborators and their possessions. And Moshe announces, I will prove that everything I did was done based upon the orders from on high, from the divine. This is not my own decision. If they die normally, then God did not send me. But if God creates a new creation and they get swallowed up by a perfectly placed sinkhole, then you know that God sent me. Instantly, a sinkhole appears, and it swallows up the participants in the revolt and their families and their possessions. And then a fire comes, and a fire consumes the two hundred and fifty people who were illegally offering torah's incense. Moshe instructs Elazar the son of Aaron to take the fire pans and to fashion them into plates to cover the altar, to warn any non cohen and he non-descendant of Aaron from doing the service of the Kohen. And the next day, Moshe is the recipient of complaints. You killed the nation of God. And Moshe and Aaron enter the Mishnah, And God tells Moshe that he's going to destroy the nation. And Moshe realizes that a plague is underfoot. And he sends Aaron out with incense to save the people. Don't think the incense destroys. It saves. And he stands between the living and the dead. And he stops the plague but not before it claims 14 plus thousand victims. Now it's interesting. The Torah does not tell us precisely how Korah himself died. One opinion in the Talmud says that Korah did not die in neither the sinkhole nor the fire, but he died, Rashi tells us, in the subsequent plague that happened the next day. Or perhaps maybe he died in both. He died twice. One opinion tells us that he, he was burned by the fire. But it was only internally his soul was burned, not his body. And then his body was subsequently swallowed up, so he really died twice, but cannot be counted in either group. Regardless, all the mutineers, all the insurrectionists are gone. And this part ends, or this part of the parsha ends, with a demonstration of the legitimacy of Aaron as the priest. Every tribe submits a staff, it's placed into the Mishkan overnight, and in the morning, Aaron's staff blossoms and blooms with almonds, and that is a permanent testament that Aaron, in fact, is the legitimate Kohain, Aaron, and the Levite tribe, to the exclusion of anyone else. Now, it is interesting, if you study the Parsha, there are four different levels of mutineers, four four different flavors, if you will. Korach, he's the ring leader. He's the chief antagonist. And he has an agenda. He's envious. He feels like there was a position that he deserved, and he didn't receive it. And he is so disappointed about that, that he launches a full-scale rebellion. And then he gets some devotees. There's the 250 heads of the Sanhedrin, and their real crime is that they were usurpers of the priesthood. And what happens to someone who does service that is unauthorized? Well, we have an example of that in the past already. Aaron's other two sons who were killed, Nadav and Avihu, they were consumed by a fire. These 250 heads of the Sanhedrin are also consumed by a fire. And then we have the serial malcontents, the people who are always complaining since the beginning of the Torah, the nemesis of Moshe and Aaron are Dathan and Abiram, and their only agenda, their only horse in the race was that if there's a fight, and someone's starting up, and someone's riling up the crowd, and there's some sort of mutiny, they are in, and they don't die with a fire. They die by being swallowed up by the earth. And the commentaries tell us that they went straight to hell. Why? Because such an attitude of just opposing and just starting up and trying to create division and, and strife and discord amongst the nation, that is the essence of purgatory, of Gehenom. Commentaries tell us on Monday of Genesis only two things were created. Number one, separation. Separation of the higher waters from the lower waters. And that's the idea of these people who just wanted to create separation, to create disunity, to fracture the people, to create schisms in the people. And therefore, they were deserving of the other thing that was created on Monday, namely Gehenum. Someone who is a serial disruptor of the peace gets swallowed up. And then you have the plague. Even after Moshe demonstrates clearly that God sent them, everything he did was ordered by God. And he says, listen, if they die normally, it's not God who sent me. But if there's a perfectly positioned sinkhole that just swallows up all the Mutineers, all the insurrectionists and their possessions and their families. And then it just covers itself up. Nothing we've ever seen like that before. Even if you have a sinkhole, it just stays open or gets bigger. This is like a mouth. Opens up, gobbles them up, swallows them, and closes its mouth, its lips shut again. Even after that happened, the next day, the people complained to motion. Aaron, you killed the nation of God. Some people, you just cannot please them. No matter what you do, no matter how clearly you demonstrate that you're doing what the Almighty wants of you, a leader has to know that if anything goes wrong, even if you're not at fault, you will be blamed. Afterwards, there's the ceremony to show for once and for all that the Levi tribe and the family of Aaron, they are designated by God, those Staffs of the other tribes remain dry and Aaron's staff bloomed and blossomed. And this is a very instructive story. For one, there is a prohibition to be like Korah. We are not allowed to mimic, to emulate, to walk in the ways of Korah. Moreover, the idea of there being some internal discord amongst communities, that's as old as civilization, as society itself. Even this great nation and this unparalleled generation, they had their Korach, and every community, or many communities, have a Korach as well. And as illogical as it sounds, we may even have an inclination to be a serial malcontent like Dathan And Abiram, and therefore, this is a very valuable story to study for our own lives. Now, I have to stress, and this is something we've spoken about in the past, there is a prohibition to mimic Korach, but that does not mean that we believe in the idea that people cannot be challenged, that there's infallibility, papal infallibility. We don't believe in that. Not only is debate Okay, it is encouraged. But not all debates are created equal. The Mishnah tells us, Every dispute, every debate that's for the sake of heaven, will endure. If it's not for the sake of heaven, it will not endure. And what's the example, what's the prototype of a dispute that was done for the sake of heaven? That is the dispute of Hillel and Shammai. And what is the prototype, the example of a machlokas, of a dispute that's not for the sake of heaven? That is the dispute of Korach and his congregation. Disputes are okay. We don't believe in monochromatic uniformity. We have an idea called Elu va'elu, these and these. The opinion of Beishamai, the opinion of Beishilo all the opinions that are at odds with each other. If they are done for the sake of heaven, they are the word of the living God. We believe that everyone's different. There are 12 tribes. There are 12 gates of prayer in heaven. The sea was split into 12 walkable paths. Every tribe has their own unique way of connecting to the Almighty. At Sinai, we've talked about this many times in the past. Every single individual had their distinct, unique revelation. Each was a bespoke, tailored experience. So our version of the ideal world, it's not this quiet consensus, everyone agrees, everyone's the same. No. Everyone should embrace their individuality. And therefore that should result in, in vigorous even rancorous debate. The Talmud tells us that true Torah scholars, when they are engaged in a Torah dispute, they hate each other. That is okay. That is a feature of real-spirited Talmudic debate. But when they leave, they become the closest of friends. They are united in pursuit of truth. They're not just seeking their own promotion. They're not coming into the argument because they have a preferred outcome that they want. They're not making the Torah reshape and reshift itself to accommodate their needs. Unlike Korach. Korach was miffed at not being appointed the head of the family of Kahas. And you know what? He had a reasonable gripe. Moshe and Aaron are the sons of the eldest son of the next promotion after Moshe the king and Aaron the high priest ought to be mine, reasoned Korach. but it went to Elitsaphon, my younger cousin. That may be a legitimate gripe, but everything that flowed from that was motivated not by pursuit of the truth, but by envy. He was envious that he was overlooked. And that is what was secretly motivating his rebellion. And it's very interesting, because even though he was fine with Aaron being the high priest, he wanted the other promotion that went to Elit Nevertheless, he challenged and contested Aaron the high priest. So this is an example of an argument that's not for the sake of heaven, and such an argument, such a fight, such a dispute, will not endure. And in fact, Korach, and his co-conspirators were eliminated. And we are warned to not copy, to not mimic, to not replicate the behavior of Korach. I want to focus on a particular angle of this story so we can get a little bit deeper into Korach and where he went wrong. In the very first verse of our parsha. It gives us the attribution of Korach. Vayitach Korach, and Korach took, who's Korach? Ben Yitzhar, the son of Yitzhar, Ben Kahas, the son, of Le- the son of Kahas. Ben Levi, the son of Levi. So Korach is a great-grandson of Levi of Levi, the son of Jacob. Korach's father is Yitzar, and his grandfather is Kahas, and his great-grandfather is Levi. We could go further. Great great grandfather is Jacob. Great 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 grandfather is Isaac. Great 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 grandfather is Abraham. Going back all the way to Adam, we know the genealogy. Now, Rashi, as he always does, he discusses several elements of this verse. And he observes that Korach is given an incomplete genealogy. It says Korach, the son of Ietsar, the son of Kahas, the son of Levi. Why does it stop there? It should have said, Rashi notes, it should have said, Korach, Ben Yitzar, Ben Kahas, Ben Levi, Ben Jacob. It should have said Ben Yaakov, son of Jacob. So why does it give us such a long list, but an incomplete list of Korach's antecedents? Korach, Ben Yitzar, the son of Yitzar, the son of Kahas, the son of Levi, and that's where it stops. So Rashi tells us, that Jacob prayed that his name should not be invoked in the congregation of Korach. Very interesting. In chapter 49 of Genesis, Jacob is on his deathbed, and he gives a prophetic final message to his sons, presented as blessings. And when he speaks about Levi, Levi, his third oldest son. He invokes Levi's great-grandson, namely Korach, and he dissociates himself from Korach. You recall he begins the, what's called blessings, with rebuke to, to Ruvain. Ruvain, you jumbled the beds, and you would have been the king, you would have been the priest, but you lost it all. And then he combines Shimon and Levian to one One blessing. It sounds like a curse, but it's called a blessing. And he says to them Shimon Valevi, Shimon and Levi, you are brothers. Stolen tools, stolen craft are their weapons. And Rashi tells us that Shimon and Levi are justly called brothers because their behavior was motivated by brotherhood. They were committed to the family. When their sister was abducted and assaulted by Shechem, who lived in the city of Shechem, not to be confused, the city and the individual, when the family well-being was threatened by Shechem, they acted with great ferocity, and they destroyed the whole city. When they perceived that Joseph was threatening their family, again they acted and they wanted to have Joseph killed. Ultimately, he was sold as a slave. We know that story from the book of Genesis. Says Jacob, their craft, their weaponry is stolen. It's stolen from Esau. The modi apparendi of Shimon and Levi, is not from Jacob, Jacob says. It is stolen craft from Asaph. Jacob, his hallmark, is his voice. He uses words. The voice is the voice of Jacob. Violence, murder, that's the craft. That's the handiwork. That's the methodology. Of Asaph. And they had two familial crises. Dina is abducted. Joseph seems to threaten the well being of the family. And in both cases, their solution was murder. The whole city of Shechem, they're guilty because one person violated Dinah. And they used subterfuge to get them weakened, circumcise yourself on day three, everyone's weak. And they come and mow down the whole city. Why did Shimon want to kill Joseph? Because he was causing a rift in the family. He's snitching to Jacob and his brothers. He's trying to destroy the continuity of the family. And their solution is to kill him and to throw him into a pit. Those tools, says Jacob, to his sons, they were stolen from Asaph. Your solution, Shimon Levi the brothers, your solution to encroachment on the brotherhood of the family was murder. And that tool, that craft, does not come from me. It was stolen from Asaph. Continues Jacob. This is again in chapter forty-nine of Genesis. Besodam altavon avshi. In their secret, may my soul not come. In their congregation, let my honor not be united. What does this mean? Rashi tells us. In a few weeks, we're going to read about a tragic, scandalous episode of an heir of Shimon. This is Zimri, he is the head of the tribe of Shimon, and he takes a Midianite woman and does a very public sin with her. And again, he is attributed to Shimon, but not to Jacob. This, Jacob refers to the secret of Shimon, and he says, I want no part of it, don't mention my name. Continues Jacob, in their congregation, may my honor not be included, Korach is going to congregate some people against Moshe and Aaron, and I don't want to have any part in that congregation. And therefore, when you name him, when you attribute him, Korach, Ben Yitzchak Ben Chaz, Ben Levi, but not Ben Jacob. And he concludes, cursed is their wrath, I'm going to scatter them, I'm going to disperse them amongst Israel. On Jacob's deathbed, he assesses his sons, and he tells Shimon and Levi that their weaponry was stolen craft from Asaph. And therefore, when descendants of Shimon and Levi, Zimri from Shimon, Korach from Levi, when they do crimes later on the Torah, don't mention my name, why? Because I want to have no part with the behavior of these descendants of Shimon and Levi. Very interesting way to start the Parsha, one of the very first Rashis in our Parsha. And again, Rashi in both instances, in Genesis chapter 49 and in the beginning of our Parsha, Rashi tells us this idea that Jacob is very hesitant, very resistant to have his name be applied to Korach and to Korach's story and congregation. But let's get a little bit deeper into what's going on over here. Why is Jacob so dead set on not having his name invoked in the episode of Korach? And specifically, what's the connection between the stolen craft, this idea that they stole some craft, from Asaph, how is that connected to what flows from that in their secret, in their congregation, don't mention my name. So I think there's something deep going on over here. I will tell you, just as an aside, there's a creative idea courtesy of the Svasemis. When Jacob was saying that he wants no part in Korach, He was praying that Jacob's own immense abilities should not be extended to Korach. Think about it. Korach, he was a spectacular talent. He was clever. He was a piqueach. He was rich. He was obviously very persuasive. Think about it. He managed to get very serious people, 250 heads of the tribes, to repudiate Moshe. This is already after all we've seen Moshe do. Korach almost managed to derail the nation in their commitment to Moshe and to Aaron. What would happen if Korach just had a little bit more strength? A slight extra boost? Maybe he would have been successful in creating irreparable damage. And therefore Jacob prayed that his characteristics not be perpetuated to Korach and thereby mitigate the power of Korach and the deleterious effects of his rebellion. But I want to suggest another idea, another approach to this whole notion that Jacob doesn't want his name to be associated with Korach. Jacob prays that Korach be named Korach, the son of Yitzhar, the son of Kahas, the son of Levi, but not the son of Jacob. What is the meaning of this prayer? So perhaps what it means is that Jacob is making a statement. Korach is not deserving of having my name applied to him. And the reason is because whatever Korach is doing, whatever he is manifesting, the behavior of Korach, that is something that does not derive from Jacob. If we study Jacob, and we study Korach, we'll discover that what Korach is doing is antithetical to Jacob. And therefore, whatever Korach is doing, what he's manifesting, don't apply the name of Jacob Because it has no connection, it has no association. It does not derive from Jacob. Now, I did listen to the rebroadcast, and we spoke about this very briefly in the rebroadcast. We spoke about envy, the brothers copied Esav, they were envious of Esav, and Korach is envious of of Aaron. And that rebroadcast was recorded a few years ago, I think it goes a bit deeper. Korach, like his ancestor Levi, but unlike Jacob, Korach embodied to a certain extent the spirit and the qualities and the glaring flaws of Asaph. Let's explain. How does Korach resemble Asaph. The Midrash tells us that Korach was enormously wealthy. In fact, it tells us that the wealthiest Jew of all time, move over Mark Zuckerberg and Bloomberg and the rest of them, the wealthiest Jew of all time, or at least up to the point of the writing of the Midrash, was Korach. In fact, there were two wealthy people, the wealthiest ever. One Jew, one non-Jew. The Jew is Korach. The non-Jew is Haman. And both of them, the money did not benefit them. In fact, it was to their detriment. Now, how did Korach amass his wealth? And how did Haman amass his wealth? It tells us the Midrash. This is in Esther Rabbah five. Korach found the treasure houses of gold and silver that Joseph hid. Joseph, the viceroy of Egypt, he sold all the grain and amassed all the wealth, and he hid a certain treasury of gold and silver. And Korach found it, and Korach took it. How did Haman become so rich? He too found some treasures the treasures of the teams of Judah and the spoils of the temple. And that's how he became so rich. That's one Midrash. In a second Midrash, it gives us some more detail. Again, it tells us the two richest ever, the richest of the Jews was Korach and the richest of the non-Jews was Haman. And both of them were destroyed And why were both of them destroyed? Because they did not receive their wealth from God. Rather, they grabbed it. They snatched it. They seized it. Very interesting Midrash here. The two wealthiest men in history, Korach from the Jews, Haman from the non-Jews, for both of them, their wealth was to their detriment. For both of them, it was their undoing. Why? Because it was not given to them by God. Instead, they snatched it. They grabbed it. Haman from the treasury of the kings of Judah and Korach from the treasury of Joseph. Now, the Talmud also speaks about Haman and Korach in this context. And it gives us some more descriptions of Korach's vast wealth. Korok was so wealthy that just to keep track of all the keys that held the access to the treasure houses that he had, it uses some exaggeration, he needed 300 animals, 300 mules to carry so much weight. And all the mules were carried with just just the, the keys, the access to the treasure houses of Korach. Oh, and those those locks and keys were not even metal. They were light. They were made out of leather. And that's how many animals you need to carry the keys of the treasure houses of Korach. Now, again, this, there's some exaggeration, but it's trying to convey just the absolute gargantuan wealth that Korach had. Now, the Talmud tells us, this is in the book of Sanhedrin, page 110a, that actually Joseph had three different treasure houses or treasure areas that he had hid, and one of them was revealed to Korach, and one of them was revealed to Antoninus, the emperor of Rome, and one of them is still hidden, and it will be revealed to the righteous in the future. Very, very interesting. Korach, Haman, super-duper, uber-wealthy, but their wealth was to their detriment. It was their undoing. They snatched it illegally or against the will of God, or at least it was not conveyed to them by God. And we also see that Antoninus, who was the emperor of Rome, the confidant of Rebbe the prince, he also took some of this wealth of Joseph, and one still stashed away for the righteous in the future. Now, when did Korach discover the treasure houses of Joseph? So, the sources say something really interesting. On the night of the Exodus, Moshe tells the nation to go borrow, if you know what I mean, borrow valuables from your Egyptian neighbors. And the Almighty made their request irresistible. He interfered with their free will, and they all just gave him all their valuables. And this was designed to fulfill the blessing, the promise made to Abraham, that although the nation will suffer for 400 years in a land that they don't own, they'll be enslaved and tormented and oppressed, but when they leave, they will leave with great wealth. So the whole night, everyone's going to borrow from the neighbors valuables. Now, this was effectively a payment, the Talmud tells us, for the years of unpaid servitude that the nation endured. The nation was forced into unpaid labor, and this was reparations. This is reparations to pay for all the work that you did without without getting paid. Now, we know that the Levites were not subjected to working in Egypt. They weren't enslaved. And therefore Korach, he's a Levite, so he was not enslaved, and therefore had no claim to any of the wealth, to any of the borrowing that's happening before the Exodus. And he sees everyone, stockpiling all this gold and treasure and jewelry, and he's envious. And we know, if we want to think about Torah, we know that he has a weakness for envy. As an aside, we know that the Levites were the smallest by population, the smallest amongst the tribes. Right? You're counting only from the age of 30 days, they only equal 22,000. And the commentaries explain that the people who were enslaved received a miraculous blessing. They had explosive growth as a result of their hardship. And the Levites didn't merit that because they didn't work. They weren't enslaved. So Korach is envious. And he's watching and he and he just can't believe it. And, and he's so jealous and he's so envious and he's not managing and there's a principle that says, In the path that a person wants to go, that is the path in which they are led. So Korach is so, so, so deeply desirous of some Egyptian wealth that God revealed to him the secret treasuries of Joseph. And that's how Korach became so wealthy, like Haman. So enormously wealthy, but he didn't really have it given to him by God. He he snatched it, he grabbed it, and this was to his detriment, and this was his undoing. Now we know where's that treasury now. The verse tells us that all of the possessions, all of the wealth of Korach was swallowed up into that sinkhole. So he didn't really get to enjoy his money. Just tells us that even items that were lent out. Even a needle that was lent out from Korach, that too was swallowed up. So Korach had enormous wealth, but he lost it all. Now, the the name Korach means bald, and it's not a coincidence. The Midrash tells us that this was a fitting name for Korach, because when he had this rebellion against Moshe, his wife fomented his displeasure with Moshe. And she said to him, look at you, you're so bald. Because all the Levites had to shave off all their hair. You're so bald. You're Korach, you're Kireach. And he's doing this because he wants to see you bald and laugh at you. And that's why he's mandating that you shave everything. So Korach told her, well, he's doing it himself as well. He's also shaving. He's also a Levite. Moshe's, after all, a Levite. So she said to him, no, 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 it's like Shimshon. He's willing to suffer the indignity of being completely shaved just to see you like a little egghead shaved and denuded of all your hair. So Korach was bald, and that's why his name is Korach, because this is a contributing factor to his story, to his art, and to his downfall. But there's another idea that uh, a bald person doesn't have any hair. And Korach is like bald. He has nothing. What does he he end up with? All that wealth that he amassed, those 300 animals that are just transporting the keys that are able to hold open the the storage houses of of treasure that he has, all that is all swallowed up by the sinkhole. The Talmud gives a humorous anecdote about a man who was married to two women, one really old one and one really young one. And he was middle-aged and he got some salt and pepper here. And his younger wife didn't like that he had some white hair. I'm young. I want my husband to be young like me. And his older wife, she didn't like that uh, he had some black hair. I'm old. I want him to be old like me. So each one of the wives just plucked out the hairs they didn't like. The young wife plucked out all the white hairs. And the old wife plucked out all the black hairs and he ended up completely bald. That's the story of the Talmud. Maybe it's some advice. One wife is plenty. I made sure that uh, you're on the same page. But this is emblematic of Korach. He ended up with nothing. He had so much and he wanted so much. He wanted even more. And he lost everything. Now, he's compared to Haman. If you look at Korach's story, It is a bit Haman-esque. What is the undoing of Haman? Everyone is bowing down before him. Everyone, with the exception of Mordechai. And what does Haman say? This is not worth anything for me. As long as, as Mordechai doesn't bow down, all the gold and all the children and all the power and all the prestige is all worthless to me. The essence of Haman is insatiability, his unparalleled wealth. It's not enough. There's this one tiny little thing that I cannot have. Mordecai is not bowing before me. This will rankle me and disturb me and disrupt me to no end and I won't get past it. And this is Korach as well. Korach is like Haman. He's the wealthiest Jew. And he's a Levi. He has special plays. He has a special role. He's, he's from the family of Kahas that's in charge of carrying the holiest of the vessels of the tabernacle. But there was one appointment that I thought I should get. There's one little thing that I cannot have. And that will just, that, that's going to be the only thing that I focus on. The Talmud asks a question, where is the source of Haman in the Torah? Is there any scriptural hinting, invocation of Haman in the Torah? And the Talmud tells us, this is found in the Talmud of the book of Chulin, on page 139b. Yes. Genesis chapter 3. Verse 11, after Adam and Eve consumed the forbidden fruit, God says, Haminha ha'etz, did you eat from the tree that I instructed you not to eat from? But the word Hamin ha'etz, which means from the tree, it's the same letters as Haman, Haman. Adam was allowed to eat from all the trees in the garden, all of them. Except one. Haman had everything in the world. Except one. Korach had everything he could possibly want. Except one. And the undoing of these three was they couldn't get past that one little thing. That they could not have. That's Haman. And that's Korach. Three people who was undoing was an inability to accept that there was one little thing that was off-limits to them. They all had so, 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 so much. More than anyone in history. But it wasn't enough. It was insufficient. And that tiny little point of lacking that they had, that just unraveled everything for them. Adam is booted from the garden, and he's severely diminished. Haman is humiliated. He's hanged along with his ten sons. And by the way, that enormous estate, that was lost as well. And Korach was swallowed up with his family, together with all his vast possessions. And even a lowly needle was not left above ground. And the Midrash tells us, Haman, Korach, enormously wealthy, But this was to their detriment. This was their undoing. And why? Because it was not given to them by God. They snatched it. And I think there's a very, very deep and subtle point over here. Why, in fact, were Haman and Korach unable to tolerate that small thing, that small little point that they didn't have Haman. He had everything. He just couldn't bear that there was one solitary Jew who was not bowing before him. And Korah had everything. He just could not bear that there was one position that he was passed over, one promotion that he could not get. Where does this inability to accept the tiniest lacking come from? All this comes back to the origin of their wealth. Their wealth was not given to them by God. They snatched it on their own. When you can accept that God gave you something, you know it's from Him. You realize that He is the one who's dispersing and dispersing. He is the one who's deciding what, who what. Everyone gets. If you have that philosophy, you can accept that God gave something to someone else. If you realize that you get what you have from God, then someone else gets what they have also from God. But if you're a snatcher and you're grabbing stuff that God did not give to you, that God did not apportion for you, anything that you don't have, will irk you, will bother you, will annoy you to no end. When you have insatiable, rapacious desire, you snatch even the things that you don't deserve. In effect, you are shifting your focus away from what God gave you. And this will create an inability to tolerate something that you don't have. But if you're trained to know that God accords to everyone what they need, and therefore, when you're missing something, you can realize, you can accept that that is something that you don't need. But if someone's a snatcher, you're operating under a different belief, a different worldview, and that worldview does not allow you to accept that you don't have something that you would want. And therefore, says the Midrash, their money was their undoing. It was to their detriment and is what destroyed them. And again, I don't want this to be misconstrued as, as if the sages are saying that money is in wealth and all that's evil. That is not a Torah belief. That's what other religions profess. It's not what we believe. We believe that when God gives a person great wealth, it's a blessing. But they have to recognize that it comes from the Almighty and that they ought to be trustworthy stewards of that gift. Korach and Haman, they sought that, that they did not get from God. And that attitude was their undoing. They lost everything, including their ill-gotten wealth. This is, of course, a very deep reading of the Midrash, and there's a very, very deep and subtle point here. Now, where did Korach get this attitude from? Where did this come from? Jacob, on his deathbed, he tells his sons, This does not originate with me. Don't assign my name to Korach, because he's not my antecedent on this level. In fact, Jacob is the antithesis of Korach. What does Jacob say when he meets Asaph? Yesh li kol, I have everything. Jacob embodies the notion, the spirit that everything that he had was given to him by God, and this manifests itself in a variety of ways. When he leaves, some judge on the other side of the river, he endangers his life, to retrieve them. And the reason, well, everything that I have was given to me by God. So even these small jobs, if they're given to me by God, I must need them. How can I leave them on the other side of the river? That's one element of the Jacob philosophy. On the other hand, Jacob doesn't steal. He doesn't own a single thing that's not his. When Laban rummages through Jacob's tent, this is in Genesis chapter 31, after Jacob absconds, Laban does not find a single item, a single article, nothing that belongs to him. This is the attitude of, I have everything. Everything is apportioned to me by God, and I'm not snatching anything. This attitude, this attitude is going to result in a total acceptance. Of the idea that you don't have something that was not given to you by God. Now, if you study Jacob's life, you'll see that this extends to everywhere beyond finance. Jacob's whole life, he's being led by God. Every situation that he ends up in, every crisis that he encounters, every shift of his life is almost compelled and he's forced to pivot. Jacob would have been content to remain in the tents of Torah his whole life. But he's compelled to steal a blessing, and he's compelled to flee to Haran, and he wants to marry Rachel, but God has different plans, and he's compelled to take Leah too, even though Jacob do whatever he can to avoid that from happening. And God compels him to leave Laban, and he's forced to navigate all sorts of dicey situations with Dina, with Joseph, with Esav, and he's compelled to go to Egypt. And never does he complain. He understands that this is the guidance of God. He understands that the Almighty designs a person's challenges, and he doesn't question God. Jacob is the paragon of accepting what God gives to you. The assets, the challenges, the difficulties. And Jacob looks at Korach. And he says, don't mention my name. When you attribute Korach, say, Ben Yitzher, Ben Kas, Ben Levi, but not Ben Jacob. Because Korach, he is channeling, he's exhibiting characteristics that do not originate in me, says Jacob. I am not the spiritual antecedent of Korach. Well, if it's not Jacob, then who is it? Where, in fact, did Korach get this attitude from? So I think it's it's obvious that this, too, comes from Asaph. Jacob tells his sons, Shimon and Levi, your response to the episode of Dina's abduction and Joseph's presumed treachery, your response is weaponry that you stole from Asaph. The hands are the hands of Asaph, and that craft You stole. And then he says, not to mention his name in the episodes of Shimon and Levi's descendants, Shimon's descendant Zimri and Levi's, Levi's, Korach. The craft stolen by Shimon and Levi was perpetuated to these particular descendants, and their particular misdeeds originate not in the academy of Jacob, but in the school of Asaph. What principle did Jacob live by? Yesh, Lee, Kol, I have everything. I'm not going to take what God does not give me, and I'm not going to yield what I have from God. When Korach wants the wealth, he sees everyone getting wealth, and he doesn't. Jacob would say, okay, well, this is not something that I deserve. This is something that God does not want to give me. And Korach behaves like Asaph. I have a lot. He wants more. He has insatiable desire. He's ready to snatch. Jacob says, I have everything. Asaph says, I have a lot. But he always wants more. And like Jacob, this is a worldview that encompasses everything, not just money. Our tells tell us that asaph was always snatching women from their husbands. When you realize that the Almighty gives you what you need, you're happy with your own wife. If you're just desirous of things that the Almighty does not give you, then you may behave like asaph The attitude of asaph I have a lot, but not enough, never enough. And this is what Korach is displaying. He wanted to be wealthy. He wanted to be the head of the Kahas family. He wanted to be the Kohen Gadol. All the things that God said no, he says yes. And that's what destroyed him. Korach is behaving not like Jacob. He's like Esav. He's a snatcher. That's how he ended up with the enormous wealth in the first place with the stolen craft of asaph And that's what prompted him to launch this rebellion. And it was to his detriment. It was his undoing. All of that was gobbled up by the ground. There's a scary principle here. and We spoke about this a few years back. There is a speedy transfer of craft, of modi operandi, how much time did Shimon Levi actually spend with Uncle Asaph? If you do the math, they met once for sure when Jacob encountered Asaph and his 400 men in full military regalia in the beginning of Parshas Vayishlach. Maybe they met again, perhaps, at Isaac's funeral. Maybe yes, maybe no. But they were together for a very short amount of time. And that was long enough to leave an impression upon these two brothers for them to adopt Asaph's craft. They see Asaph, and he's got his 400 men, and they're armed and ready to battle. Asaph is flexing his muscles. The hands are the hands of Asaph. And all this aggression and violence is witnessed by Shimon and Levi. And they absorb some of it. And in the episode of Dina, it surfaces, their craft of violence of Asaph surfaces. And in the episode of Joseph, again, they operate like Asaph with violence. Their very brief encounter with Asaph made a lifelong impression upon them. Now, when Jacob and Asaph met again, Jacob and Asaph invoked their dueling life philosophies. Jacob says, I have everything. Everything is given to me by by God, and therefore I, by definition, have everything. And Asaph says, I have a lot, meaning it's not given to me by God, and it's possible for me to have more, and I want more, and I'm going to snatch if necessary. Jacob says, I have everything. I snatch nothing. And Asaph is a serial snatcher. And on his deathbed, Jacob rebukes Shimon and Levi for appropriating Esav's craft. And then he looks towards the future, and he sees the descendants of Shimon and Levi further exhibiting the craft of Esav, and he proclaims, This is not for me. This is not my way. This was usurped from Esav. Do not attribute Korach to me. I think there are some powerful lessons from this idea. First of all, the power and the speed of character appropriation. Shimon and Levi spent only a few hours with Asaph, but that was enough to get them to mimic, to imitate, to copy Uncle Asaph. And that embedded some of Asaph into their lines. It manifested several generations down the line with Korach and, of course, with Zimri. So I think lesson number one is we tend to underestimate human impressionability. People are incredibly impressionable. We're very susceptible to learning from others, not always good things. We could be very easily influenced and negatively indoctrinated. That's lesson number one. We have to be very careful to not learn from the Asav's that we may encounter. It's best to even avoid them, but if we have to be with them, make keep it short. But even short meanings—the short meaning of Jacob and Asav—resulted in some of the craft of Asav being imbibed by Shimon Levi in a way that even centuries later, vestiges of Asav are found in Korach and, and Jacob, and his prophecy foretells Korach has this. Don't apply my name to it. There's another. Lesson, very powerful one. Jacob distinguishes himself from Asaph and from Korach in this way. Jacob sees the hand of God in everything. God determines what we get and when we get it and how much. Jacob doesn't snatch anything that wasn't assigned to him. I think it's worthwhile to take a long, hard look at our life and our worldview. And to ask ourselves, are we heirs of Jacob? Are we students of Jacob? Do we live fully with the attitude of, I have everything? Everything is given to me by God. Everything's valuable. Everything's substantial. And I want nothing that I don't have. We don't want to be infected with even a little bit of the stolen craft of Asaph. And I think the third idea, or maybe the third lesson, maybe there are more. It's worthwhile to appreciate the futility of the attitude of Asaph. Haman lost it all. Korach lost it all. Adam was booted from the garden. Even Asaph lost it all. During the global famine, what happened to all of Asaph's wealth? All that was lost. The students of Asaph don't win. Ultimately, the will of God prevails. Haman's money came back to the Jews. Joseph's money that was supposed to be hidden, and Korach interfered, it was buried again. Asaph's attitude is very seductive, and it's easily transmissible, but ultimately, it's futile. May we owe merit to behave in a way that channels the resplendent qualities of Jacob. We like to end the Parsha podcast with a question. We're trying to learn more about the Parsha and get more intelligent about the Torah and the Parsha to raise our IQ. We have an idea. Now it's time for our question. After the fire consumed the 250 people who offered the illicit Torahs, Moshe instructs Elazar, his nephew, the son of Aaron, to collect the pans and to plate the altar with them as a reminder of the legitimacy of Aaron's priestliness, This is one of the two signs of the supremacy, of the primacy of Aaron. We have the copper plating of the altar and the almond-blooming staff that was kept next to the ark for posterity. But here's the question. Why Elazar? Why not Aaron? Simple question. And the commentaries give a very powerful answer. You have to learn how to win with grace, even if you win justly, and even if your enemies, your opponents, were guilty and are evil in an egregious fashion. Don't rub salt on the wounds of your defeated foes. Don't stick it to them. Aaron was the object of the desire of the envy of these 250 people. They wanted to be high priests. They wanted to do the work, the service of Aaron. If Aaron himself went amongst the corpses to pick up those firepans, It would, stick, would poke them a little bit more in the eye. We won. The good guys won. Aaron won. But don't rub it in. Allow them to save face, so to speak. Don't revel in the downfall of your opponents. Win with grace. Don't stick it to the opponents after the battle's over. The great U.S. Grant in the Civil War, he took great lengths to make sure that the defeated can maintain some of their pride, can save face, can feel good about themselves. He didn't take away their their, their weapons can maintain some standing, and in a very different way. In the legendary episode of the conflict between rabbi Gamliel and Rabbi Yoshua, when the great rabbi Gamliel was deposed, as told in the book of Baruchos, on page 27b, going into 28a, there's a story where the head of the Sanhedrin, rabbi Gamliel, he humiliated the great Rabbi Yahshua, made him stand endlessly, and for that, he was deposed. Rabbi Gamliel was deposed of his post, and they had to choose a different head of the Sanhedrin. And the best candidate was Rabbi Yoshua himself. But they said, "No, no, it's not. It's not nice. It's not fair to Rabbi Gamliel." Yes, we deposed him. We fired him from his job. Let's not hire the same person. Regarding whom this conflict. Oriented, We're not going to hire him so that every day he has to suffer a little more. It's a good lesson for us. When you win, do whatever you can to allow the loser to rehabilitate, to allow them to move on and proceed. Very nice lesson from our Parsha. Parsha's Korach. This was a joy and a delight to study with y'all. Send me an email, rabbiwolbi at gmail.com. I look forward to your questions, your comments, and your feedback. Have a wonderful day. A spectacular rest of your week. A splendid Shabbos upcoming. And please, God, please, God, please, God, with the help of the Almighty, we will have another partial podcast next week. My email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. And please send me an email if you haven't yet. Okay, bye-bye.